Father, thank you uh, for your grace and mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you're a saving God. And Lord, we just ask today that you would continue to do a mighty work of grace in the salvation of sinners here at Fisherville. I pray, Lord, for opportunities for each one of us to share that, uh, that gospel of grace out in our communities. We pray for open doors. We pray that our people would continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, even as we celebrate these four baptisms, we're reminded of our Christian family across the land who are being persecuted for their faith. So, Father, we would ask uh, this morning that you would give them the grace to continue to sense your presence in their persecution and affliction. Lord, that they would know that there's a greater body of Christ that's praying for them. They would experience your comfort. Lord, that they would even have open doors for evangelism in the midst of their suffering. We, We pray that they would boldly share the gospel when those doors are opened. Lord, I pray you would give them the grace to forgive and love their persecutors. Realizing that that is an apologetic for the gospel in itself. That you would grant them wisdom in their covert ministries. Lord, that they would continue to remain joyful. That the joy of the Lord would be their strength in their suffering. Lord, that they would continue to grow in their faith and be rooted in your word. And Father, we pray that for Fisherville as well as we look into this very important text in Titus 3. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, last Tuesday, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Of course, we know that Martin Luther was not the only reformer. There were many who went before him, and there were many during his time, and, and certainly after his time. The Reformation, though, officially began on that October 31st evening in 1517 when he nailed those theses, 95 theses, of protest uh, and a desire for debate those issues on the door of the Wittenberg Castle. It was All Hallows' Eve. The next day was All Saints' Day. And, and on that day, the pilgrims were scheduled to pass by the relics of the church. Now, what were the relics? Uh, physical remains and even things owned by the saints who had died before them. And they were appealing to the excess merits of the saints in hopes of satisfying God's righteous demands. Every relic was endowed by the Pope with an indulgence to lower one's time in purgatory. For example, in Wittenberg, where Luther lived, the relics included one piece of Jesus' swaddling clothes, 13 pieces from his crib, one wisp of straw from the manger, one piece of the gold brought by the wise men, and three of the myrrh, one strand of Jesus' beard, one of the nails driven into his hands when he was on the cross, one piece of bread eaten at that last supper, one piece of the stone on which he stood before he ascended to the Father, One twig of the burning bush. And those who viewed these relics and made the required contributions would receive from the Pope indulgences to the extent of, get this, 1,902,202 years 
and 270 days. That's the time you would have remitted from purgatory. Now, this occurred every year, uh, but this year was different. 1517, for one, Luther's own studies in the New Testament were giving him a different perspective on salvation than what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching. Up to this point, uh, he had believed that uh, a good person who works with all his heart can essentially earn God's approval. And he sought to do that. For instance, he said, I was a good monk. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery. I don't know if that's a new word that Luther invented. It was I. He said, if I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils and prayers, reading and other work. He went to confession for as long as six hours a day. He believed that in order for a sin or sins to be forgiven, they had to be confessed. And in order for them to be confessed, they had to be remembered. If they weren't remembered, they couldn't be confessed. And if they weren't confessed, then they would not be forgiven. But he could never feel like the ledger was balanced. Here's what he says in his own words. This word is too high. He's talking about the law of God. And it's too hard that anyone should fulfill it. This is proved not merely by our Lord's words, but by our own experience. Take any upright man. He's just talking about a good man in general. This upright man, he he will get along very nicely with those who do not provoke him. But let someone offer only the slightest irritation and he will flare up in anger. If not against friends, then against enemies. Flesh and blood cannot rise above it. I think we all resonate with that, don't we? So that was the first reason this year was different. Luther's own studies. The second reason, there was an artist painting a ceiling. And it wasn't just any artist. And it wasn't just any ceiling. The artist was Michelangelo. And he was painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And he didn't come cheap. Pope Leo X's extravagant taste in art had all but bankrupted the Vatican treasury. Meanwhile, there's a man named Albert Brandenburg who had procured, unjustly so, two bishoprics at too young a position. And now he's seeking to secure a third position As bishop and all the prestige that came with that. But that would require a papal exemption for that to happen. Well, Albert and Leo X were both businessmen. Leo's thinking, how am I going to pay off Michelangelo? And so they agree on a price. But the problem was, Albert was wealthy in land, but not wealthy in cash. So that presented a problem. Enter the monk, Johann Tetzel. He devised a scheme where they could sell indulgences which guaranteed the buyer shorter time in purgatory. One of his jingles is famously uh, 
goes like this. Uh, a, a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Indulgences were pardons for sin that you could purchase. And so Tetzel took advantage of this in order to finance Albert's goals to be a bishop. So Tetzel's campaign, along with the Pope's blessing, as long as half of the proceeds went to the St. Peter's Basilica, ended up being a record indulgence sale that would forgive sins past, present, and future. And Luther could be silent no more. And so on that day, October 31st, 1517... He posted those 95 theses. Now, you can't even imagine how dangerous this was on the door of the Wittenberg Castle in hopes of having a debate about the notion of buying salvation. What Luther had come to realize is that it is erroneous to teach that God will not deny grace to those who do their best. That suggests that we are morally neutral. And Luther realized that was not the case. Luther realized and recognized that the problem is the human heart. Self-love shapes the core of all of our desires. As a result, even when you are doing something outwardly that looks noble, it's motivated by self-love. That's the issue. If we're to have a right standing with God, it will require a perfect righteousness. Complete fidelity to the law of God inwardly and outwardly. In other words, we needed the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ imputed to us as a gift. And once that righteousness is imputed to us, then the Holy Spirit begins to work that righteousness within the believer. But that progressive kind of inherent righteousness isn't the ground of our salvation. Because then it will never be perfect in this life. Jesus' imputed righteousness is. Luther began to see the critical distinction between what the, the, the church was teaching about justification and sanctification and what the scripture actually teaches. The scripture teaches that justification and sanctification are distinct Justification is a legal declaration. It it, it is something that God does outside of us. uh, Where he declares us as forgiven and righteous in his sight. Because of the righteousness of Christ. Which is imputed to us. All right. Is credited to us and and is received by faith alone. Uh, The Roman Catholics were teaching that the decisive verdict of God's approval of us follows this this accumulation of sacramental grace that you receive more and more of by your merit and your works. In other words, salvation is a progressive process. And Luther says, no. Salvation from the penalty of sin is an event It's an act of God's free grace. And perhaps no text makes that more clear than Titus chapter 3. Now in Titus 2, we have seen 
that the grace of God has appeared. I love that. Grace is personified here. Grace is a person. The grace of God has appeared, notice, bringing salvation. So our salvation from the penalty of sin is grounded in grace alone, in Christ alone, and received by faith alone. All right? So that is Titus 2. But that grace that justifies is also a grace that transforms. The, The Roman Catholic Church was collapsing those two realities. They are distinct. The grace that justifies does transform. And that's what Paul is getting at in Titus chapter 3 as we begin to see the obligations of the gospel. Again, this text is so important because one of the, one of the real concerns with Roman Catholics is that if you, you teach an alien righteousness, an imputed righteousness, it's going to lead to license. It's going to lead to antinomianism where a person just disregards the law. And Paul is saying, no. That's not it at all. Once you're justified, one of the evidences that you're justified is that God the Spirit begins to work that righteousness in the believer. That is our sanctification. And we see this here. Notice in verses 1 and 2. He says, remind them, those who have been saved, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul's concern here is that Christianity is under suspicion as a counter-political movement. He's also concerned that Christians not be charged with being those who are no different than pagans. And so he's going to give seven commands in verses 1 to 2. And here's the question I would ask as we look at these commands. Why do we need these commands? If we've already been saved and our sins have been forgiven and and we have a perfect righteous standing before God in Jesus Christ, why do we need these commands? Well, first of all, Our obedience and adherence to these commands evidence the fact that we have the new birth. But remember, we are a light. We are witnesses to those who are still in darkness. And obedience to these commands are not natural to us, even as Christians. We need a word from God. And notice the first command is quite remarkable. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, I wouldn't have begun there. But remember, Christianity in the first century was really being charged with a revolt against the civil authorities. Christians are not anarchists. We don't sabotage or disobey the government unless the government is requiring us to disobey God. Secondly, he says to be obedient. Contextually, this is conformity, a general conformity to the rulers and the authorities. Thirdly, to be ready for every good work. Now that phrase, good work, is a very important one in the Apostle Paul. Again, we are not saved by works of the law. We've learned that in Galatians, haven't we? Works of the law will damn the soul. But these are good works. Why are they good works? Because they they emanate... From a good tree. 
these are the fruit of a tree that has been changed. All right? We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So the good works are the necessary fruit of our salvation. And we are to be ready for every good work. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 14, one of the evidences that we've been saved is that we are zealous for good works. Whatever they may be. Fourthly, notice, to speak evil of no one. To speak evil of no one. That, in itself, magnifies the power of the gospel, doesn't it? Because we naturally are prone to that. Paul says in Romans 3... Speaking of the unregenerate, he says the poison of asps is under their lips. And so even as Christians, we, though we've been saved, we still have indwelling sin. And there is this temptation to act like we once did. And this is the natural way. And Paul says, you speak evil of no one. Fifthly, he says, avoid quarreling. This is the notion of being uncontentious. Uh, you've all been around those Christians who have a rest of soul. It, it, it's so evident that the shalom of Christ has come to bear on their hearts. There's just a rest. It's a rest that Jesus promises to those who have come to him. And he says, I will give you rest. But then you've been around others. It's one drama after another. And you wonder, have you ever experienced the shalom of Christ? He says, avoid quarreling. Sixthly, be gentle. Literally, be kind, be gracious. And then seventhly, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Jews, Gentiles, Christians, non-Christians, male, female, People that you have a lot in common with, people that rub you the wrong way. And all of this, he says, is to adorn the gospel of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 10. Now, he's about to change his conversation a bit in verse 3. Why? Because it's easy for us to have excuses why we don't want to obey verses 1 and 2. It's easy to say, well, that person doesn't deserve me to be gentle. That person doesn't deserve me to be courteous towards them. That person doesn't deserve my good works. That person deserves me to talk bad about them or to quarrel with them. So what Paul's going to do in verse 3 is remind them of our previous unconverted condition. Because in so doing, it humbles us and it reminds us. That we were once very unworthy of these things as well. Notice in verse 3. The necessity of the gospel. He says. For we ourselves were once foolish. You have a problem showing courtesy to fools. You were once foolish. Disobedient. Led astray. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy. Hated by others. And hating one another. So he gave seven commands. And now he's going to give us seven descriptions of our pre-Christian life. Who is he describing here? He's describing your pastor. 
before his conversion. And he's describing you. Notice the first thing. He says, we ourselves were once foolish. This has nothing to do with IQ. There are genius fools. And there are people who have a very low intellectual capacity who are very wise. What we see here is literally someone without understanding. Someone who is senseless in the things of God. Sin dumbs. Secondly, notice we were disobedient. Sin disobeys. What this means is that we at one time rejected the authority of God on our lives, His Word, and we rejected human authority as well. If you have any doubts about that, have children. You know it's not natural for a child to submit to your authority. They have to be trained in that. Sometimes that training is very painful. Sin is disobeys. Thirdly, we were led astray. We were led astray. Sin deceives. Sin deceives. It's to live in a world of unreality. There's only one world that is real. It is what God is doing. It's what God is doing through His Son, Jesus Christ. Every other story is a mythological story. It's no more real than a game of Monopoly. Sin deceives. Fourth, slaves to various passions and pleasures. He is describing our pre-converted life. Sin dictates. Sin dominates. It's a, it's a life dominated by inordinate desires. Fifth, passing our days in malice. Sin detests. We are natural detesters. We are negative towards other people. We, we assume people are guilty until proven innocent. And envy, notice, sixth, envy. Sin desires. Sin desires. Uh, sin causes us to be discontented with God's plan and provision for us. So we look at someone else and we get very envious and jealous and discontented. And then seventhly, hated by others and hating one another. Sin divides. Sin divides. Paul says that was our pre-converted state. Why is he reminding us of this? So we'll feel bad about ourselves. No, he wants us to glory in the gospel. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he knows that we have excuses for not obeying verses 1 and 2. And so he reminds us of who we once were. To humble us. But for the Christian... For those who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation... That was a picture of what we once were. But it's no longer who we are. But how can that be possible? How can that be possible? How can such a significant change occur? There's nothing inherent in me that could do that. And there's nothing inherent in you. 
You can't just determine a New Year's resolution to be kind to people and to love your enemies. Well, Paul says, I'm glad you asked. In verse 3, we see that we were active in our sin without God. And now in verses 4 to 7, we're going to see that God was active in salvation, changing what we could not change in ourselves. That brings us to the origin of the gospel, verse 4. Notice in verse 4, he says, When the, the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appear. Now, I believe that God our Savior here is referring to the Father. Though later in the passage it's going to speak of Jesus as Savior. What that tells us is that the Father and the Son are distinct, but they're equal in status, in, in glory, in essence. They're equal ontologically. But all three persons of the Godhead are actually involved, we're going to see in this passage, in our salvation. In fact, this is the third time the word appeared has appeared. I love that. It has the, it has the idea of darkness and then the light penetrating the darkness with the sunrise. The grace of God appeared. Chapter 2, verse 11. And then the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ is seen in verses 13 and 14. And here... He says it's his goodness and his loving kindness. And so God's grace, God's glory, his goodness and his loving kindness comes to us through a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. And how is that goodness, how is that loving kindness manifest to us? That brings us to verse 5, the means of the gospel. It's one of the most important passages on the gospel in the entire Bible. Notice, I love this. He saved us. Now, after reading verse 3, that should cause us to stand in awe of someone who would do that. Because verse 3 makes it very clear we are not worthy of being saved. We are messed up. And we are, we are sinners to the core. But notice, He saved us. He saved us. Now, if you're sitting here and you're not saved, and you can say, well, I don't deserve to be saved. Exactly. No one deserves to be saved. And if you're saying, my sins have disqualified me from salvation, you've missed verse 3. Verse 3 covers every gamut of sin. There is no sin that you have or are committing that disqualifies you from salvation. He came to save sinners. And notice he said he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Even if you did righteous works, he doesn't regard them. And by the way, we don't do righteous works. Because again, as Luther said, if self-love is the issue, then even our noble acts are acts of self-love. He says, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration... And renewal of the Holy Spirit. So this whole sentence centers upon this main verb. He saved us. Christianity, unlike every other religion in the world, is a religion of salvation. And in this saving act, 
God does not consider our works at all. No matter what you do. Well, I go to church every time the doors open. I read my Bible every day. I give to the poor. I'm faithful to my spouse. He does not regard our works. Our works are filthy rags to a holy God, to a righteous God. His act of saving us was mercy in total. Notice he says he saved us by the means of washing. We're dirty. We think dirty. We feel dirty. We're devoted to dirty things. That's the whole human dilemma. And he came to wash us. Notice by the washing. This is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36. In fact, verses 25 to 27, where the prophet says that in the day of the Lord, God would bring this about where he would sprinkle us clean and he would fill us. He would send his spirit to indwell us. This is the spiritual washing of regeneration and renewal. It's beautiful language. Now, the word regeneration is only seen twice in the New Testament. Here in Matthew 19, 28. And there it is speaking about the new world. The new creation, the new heavens and the new earth that God is going to accomplish upon Christ's return. And so there, if you look in Matthew 19, 28, in your footnote, it reads regeneration. It's a new world. That's what God is going to do in a macro sense. One day where he regenerates spiritually and physically. Here, it's a, the first phase of his regeneration plan. He regenerates us. And you can actually say the first phase of this was Christ being regenerated first. Christ was regenerated having taken on our sins. And God saved him. God resurrected him from the grave. He didn't save him from his sins. He saved him from our sins. Our sins were imputed to him. But this regeneration is the first phase of this regeneration program that God is doing where he's making all things new. And it occurs in us as instantaneously and supernaturally as it will in that day. In fact, that's why we can say regeneration is a radical change. You've heard somebody say, well, I, I made a decision for Christ. Well, uh, that's fine. We must trust in Christ. We must believe in Christ. But regeneration is holistic. And it's not just a decision I make. Regeneration is a holistic resurrection from the grave. He he renews us in our regeneration intellectually. Where we begin to comprehend the things of God. In fact, the first time in our lives we're actually interested in the things of God. One of the fruits of regeneration is we actually begin to love our Bibles. We're interested in what the Bible says. He he renews us volitionally. That is, he liberates our wills. Now, our wills, prior to this liberation, is active. And it's free. 
to express your sin nature. But it's in need of regeneration. He liberates us volitionally. He, he liberates us. You could say emotionally. Where he is reordering our disordered affections. He, he renews us morally. And frees us from enslaving passions. He renews us relationally. That is with God and with each other. That's why unity in the church is so important. Because when we are divided, we are saying that Christ's work of regeneration by His Spirit is not sufficient for us. It's false advertising, isn't it? Bearing false witness against the gospel. But with that said, although every regenerated person does good works, those good works are not the ground of our salvation. Because even though sin no longer has dominion over us, we still have indwelling sin. We need something more sure. We need a perfect righteousness. That brings us to verses 6 and 7, the ground of the gospel. Notice, he saved us. Uh, He regenerated us, renewed us by the Holy Spirit, whom, verse 6, he poured out on us richly. Now, he poured out the Spirit on us Because Christ's work of atonement made us fit for the Spirit to dwell in us. That's the order there. And He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs. That's adoption language. That's where we receive and rest on Him alone, the gospel. And then upon that, our status is changed. And we receive all the privileges of sonship. That we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What a glorious passage. In other words, our salvation is more than inward renewal. That's what the Roman Catholics taught and teach. Our salvation includes justification. And again, what is justification? It's not inward renewal. It's a status change. We are guilty... We're condemned, and God the judge changes our status because we've trusted in his provision for our sin. We trust in Jesus, and his righteousness is imputed to us, and we are, our status is changed from condemned and guilty to forgiven and righteous. And so justification means that God declares us righteous through the law-obeying and sin-bearing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Regeneration and renewal means that He makes us righteous. So, see the difference? Justification, He declares us righteous. And regeneration and renewal, He makes us righteous by the power of His Spirit. So, we should never, ever confuse justification and regeneration and renewal. But we cannot separate them. It brings us to the centrality of the gospel, verse 16. Or verse verse 8, rather. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable 
for people. I love the simplicity of this. Those who've been regenerated, those who've been renewed, those who've been justified, those who have been adopted are those who have believed in God. It's not just someone who believes that God exists. It's one who is believing in God's provision for their sin. That is the one who has believed in God. And what is the evidence of that? Paul says, we devote ourselves to good works. God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. And our good works evidence the fact that God has saved us. You know, we began looking at the need for reformation in the 16th century, and that really hasn't changed. Um, For instance, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which was revised as recently, updated as recently as 1994... The Catechism of the Catholic Church still affirms purgatory and it still affirms indulgences. So this isn't some problem that went away 500 years ago. In fact, when Pope Benedict XVI, who was the Pope from uh, 2005 to 2013, when he wrote his book on eschatology, Last Things, he spent more time in this book on purgatory than he did on heaven and hell combined. In 2013, Pope Francis, the newest pope, offered indulgences to those who would follow him on Twitter and would repent, live a life of repentance. In November of last year, 2016, he announced, Pope Francis, that any priest can now grant forgiveness for any woman who's had an abortion. Now, now there's forgiveness for abortions. Praise God for that. We see the forgiveness offered here in this text. But a priest doesn't offer it. The high priest does. The Lord Jesus Christ and Christ alone. In fact, 2016 was declared the special year of mercy where priests could grant Forgiveness for anything. Well, that year ended in 2016, and they're still allowed that that authority. And that's because of the belief that the Pope himself has control over the treasury of merits in the church. Merits achieved by Jesus, the saints which we believe everyone who's in Christ is a saint, and the Virgin Mary. But what does the Scripture say? It's Scripture alone, isn't it? What does the Scripture say? We saw this last week. The formal principle of the Reformation is Scripture alone. What does the Scripture say? Well, the material principle of the Reformation is this. It's by grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone. And it's only that theology that will give God the glory alone. And that's why, in fact, we observe the table. 